for those of you who don't know, my wife and I spent a, a time down in Ecuador with Stephen Sandy. It's one of the connections we have. They also had a son, Aaron Youngren, who was an elder here at this church uh, before he went to plant in Chicago. And so uh, when I read about and I see the work that's going on, and I see especially the people in the background that I know, some of their pictures, I see an old friend named Dario, a Quechua guy from the jungle that's still hanging around. And I, in one of the pictures I looked at on their Facebook page at their training, the pastor's training, it showed some guy up there, you know, training. And then Dario is standing, like, on the side, filming with his phone. <laughs> like, this guy, this Quechua guy from the jungle is, like, filming with his phone. I'm just like, oh, that's so, Dario's so awesome, man. Because I know he's going to take that video back, and then, like, that's going to be, like, their, their Bible study or their training, like, out in the jungle. It's really cool. That's something that the guys would do when we would have a church service, and the guys from, like, the outlying areas would come in and, and attend the church service, and they would listen to the sermon, and then they would leave and then go preach that sermon back at their smaller churches out, like, out further out in the jungle. It's pretty awesome. Um, so, you know, development's just going to happen uh, whether we like it or not. That's what God, and that's what God wants. So I'd like to ask you, for you to stand with me this morning for the reading of the word. We're in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. We've been uh, in chapter 1 for a couple weeks now. And we're starting in verse 18 and reading uh, through chapter 2, verse 25. And I, I, I need to turn there. <clears throat> 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18. The message of the cross is foolish to those who are headed for destruction. But we who are being saved know it is the very power of God. As the scriptures say, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and discard the intelligence of the intelligent. So where does this leave the philosophers and the scholars of this world and the world's brilliant debaters? God has made the wisdom of this world look foolish since God in his wisdom saw to it that the world would never know him through human wisdom. He has used our foolish preaching to save those who believe. It is foolish to the Jews who ask for signs from heaven and it is foolish to the Greeks who seek human wisdom. So when we preach that Christ was crucified, the Jews are offended and the Gentiles say it's all nonsense. But to those, who, those called by God to salvation, both Jews and Gentiles, Christ is the power of God the wi- and the wisdom of God. This foolish plan of God is wiser than, man's w- than the wisest of human plans, and God's weakness is stronger than the greatest of human strength. Remember, dear brothers and sisters, that few of you were wise in the world's eyes or powerful or wealthy when God called you. Instead, God chose the things the world considers foolish in order to shame those who think they are wise. And he chose things that are powerless to shame those who are powerful. God chose things despised by the world Things counted as nothing at all and use them to bring to nothing what the world considers important. As a result, no one can ever boast in the presence of God. God has united you with Christ Jesus for our benefit and God made him to be wisdom itself. Christ made us right with God. He made us pure and holy and he freed us from sin. Therefore, as the scriptures say, if you want to boast, boast only about the Lord. When I first came to you, dear brothers and sisters, I didn't use lofty words and impressive wisdom to tell you God's secret plan. For I decided that while I was with you, I would forget everything except Jesus Christ, the one who was crucified. I came to you in weakness, timid and trembling, and my message and my preaching were very plain. Rather than using clever and persuasive speeches 
I relied only on the power of the Holy Spirit. I did, so that, I did this so that you would trust not in human wisdom, but in the power of God. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. So, I had a video to play today, and I had never told you guys, but if you could play that video and it works, let's listen to it, and if it doesn't work, let's not. Yeah, okay, it does have sound, so just, just forget about it. Um, so it's a video from a movie and a book called Freakonomics, and then they made a movie out of it. And uh, the, the two authors are talking about causation and correlation, these two things that we often mix up. So oftentimes we see things that happen together, and we assume there's a causal relationship. Like these things happen together, so this one thing caused this other thing. They're commenting on the polio plague uh, 100 years ago in our country, and there was, he says there was an actual serious scientific study that was going on because people thought that children eating ice cream caused polio because there was, a, there was a direct correlation between the evidences of the cases and the rise in polio cases and the eating of ice cream. And what, what happens is polio happens in the very hot summertime and it was, hit, it was getting a lot of children. And so this correlation between eating ice cream and polio seemed to be something that they could try to develop a cause for and uh, obviously it wasn't the case that eating ice cream caused polio Um, but it it was a very clear correlation and we mistake correlation and causation oftentimes and and as we look at into this passage I feel like as I was looking at what Paul is trying to trying to get us to understand uh, getting the Corinthians to understand and, and and then us by extension sometimes we identify the wrong cause of things then when we identify the wrong cause, we can't solve problems or make progress because our decisions are sort of based on the wrong source. We, we mistake correlation and causation. And obviously, eating ice cream and polio is one ridiculous example of this, and whole books have been written about silly examples of this. But uh, the, as Paul is going into, into, into Corinth, He's, he's addressing, addressing a church that had begun to make assumptions about the faith, about who they were trusting. And they, in, in Corinth, there was, in their culture, they appreciated rhetoric. We've talked about this idea. We've talked about it was a social climbing culture. They wanted to, they wanted to be elevated uh, in the eyes of their peers. They wanted to be above people. And Paul is also continuing to address the division that's happening in the church. Now, the, the rhetoric that these guys appreciated were, were, unlike my sermons, they were very eloquent and clear and just entertaining rhetoric. But they didn't care about the content. All they wanted, to have, all they wanted was to be entertained. In my mind, I think of it like maybe a stand-up comic today. Like, we just love to hear people say funny stuff. Oftentimes, it's sort of meaningless or offensive, but it's just great the way they deliver it. And so, as we... As we enter into this, this passage, I, I want to keep those things in mind that Paul's addressing a people who naturally want to hear things in a certain way, and they don't really care about the content of it. They appreciate things if they're said correctly, more so than what's being said. And so Paul also is continuing to address the, the division that they're experiencing, and he's reminding and admonishing these guys, the Corinthians, about the message of the cross, which is the power of of God bringing new life and the power to live it. 
So in many ways, they're not, they're not too much different than we are today. Um, they see the world in a, in a certain way, and they have certain prejudices and cultural biases that begin to inform the way that they understand what they've been taught and, and who God is. And we, we, live in, we sort of have the same starting point. Uh, I, lost my, I lost my train of thought here. So as we, as we talk about, and as, we, as we bring this into our culture, we sort of say that it's, it's arrogant to assume that the way, way to live or work or talk, etc., or our way of interpreting the world is shaped by our culture, but it really is. And missionaries beginning to learn a language are, are going into a, a culture and trying to, to understand it. And, and everything that this culture, a culture experiences is shaped by the way, by its worldview, by its by its beliefs and its practices, and all these things work together. And there's a story, to, as, an, as an illustration of the way a culture influences the way people see things, a missionary, Don Richardson, went into a, a culture, and he was trying to learn the language, just, just cold, just going in and trying to learn a language that had no written language and no grammar, no anything. And he, he begun by pointing at objects and saying, you know, he has his notebook, and he says, all right, what's this? You know, and they said a word. He goes, okay, writes it down. What's this? same word. Okay, that's weird. He writes it in. What's this? Same word. And eventually he discovers they were saying finger. Like, it's your finger. <laughs> like, what do you mean? Because in their culture, pointing, they didn't point like we do. He just assumed pointing was sort of a universal sign language. They point with their lips, he discovered. Like, they would go. They would purse their lips to point at something over there. So when he figured that out, it made it a lot easier. But culture just influences the way we see the world. And the Corinthians are, are taking in what Paul is giving them and they're factoring it through everything that they understand and the way that they see the world. And I think there's a strong tendency for them to drift away from the plain and simple message of the cross because they want, they want the rhetoric. They want the way things are supposed to be. And uh, Paul says, the message of the cross is foolish to those who are headed for destruction. We who are being saved know it's the very power of God. He says that, that it's an offense to the Jewish background people, and it's foolishness to the Greek background people, the Hellenists. It's interesting. It's a scandal. He uses the word scandal, scandalon. It's offensive. It's a scandal to the Jewish mind. And he uses the word moria, or where we get the word moron, to the, to the Greek people. And so the, the question for us is, who do we follow? This idea of following people is very evident in the Corinthian culture. They had patrons, they had people that they, teachers that they followed. For us, it's a little different, but not too much, right? We follow people. <laughs> we follow people on Twitter, on YouTube, on whatever, on Facebook. And we listen to them. We listen to their ideas. We listen to their thoughts. We think that they're worth following, or we just want to hear what they have to say. And so Paul is addressing these people who are beginning to want to sort of clean up Jesus and say, you know, following Jesus is, you know, it's kind of a scandal the way that you presented it. We want to sort of make it more culturally acceptable. And for us to understand, following Jesus is really no different from any other relationship. It takes time to really get to know someone. And people are more complex than we give them credit for, including Jesus. Jesus is more complex than we can even comprehend. It doesn't mean we can't know him, 
But it does mean that as we begin to know Jesus, we're going to be continually getting to know Jesus. As we follow Jesus, we're going to be continually growing in our understanding of who he is. It's a process. It's a journey. And we can't, but we can't forget where this journey begins. Because it's the beginning of this journey that informs the way that we follow for the rest of our, the rest of our lives. So Jesus' invitation to us is not to a conversion or to a church service or to a club or to a culture. It's simply to follow. Now, following implies ongoing relationship and learning on our part. So who do you follow? The Corinthians' problem demonstrates that they had begun to sort of try to maybe downplay the message of the cross. And I think it's key to understanding what Paul is saying here. Saying here. And we need to look at a bit of the history and like, why would they do that? Um, and, and the answer, I think, is clear. And I have a few different quotes to, to bring this out from the, those that have studied this history. Um, the answer is because of Corinth and because of Rome and because of the concept of crucifixion. Anthony Thistleton um, says this, Death on a cross was regarded in Roman society, and Corinth was a Roman city, as brutal, disgusting, and abhorrent. It was reserved for convicted slaves and convicted terrorists. It could never be imposed upon a Roman citizen or more respectable criminals. It was so offensive to good taste that crucifixion was never mentioned in polite society except through the use of euphemisms. For Gentiles who might imagine a divine savior, for Jews who expected a Messiah anointed with power and majesty, the notion of a crucified Christ, a Messiah on the cross, was an affront and an outrage. Alluding to Gertie, Nietzsche, and Marx, Jürgen Moltmann rightly warns us that by, quote, surrounding the scandal of the cross with roses, we too often forget its ugliness and shame. This cultural attitude, this taboo to speak of this terrible punishment in polite society, helps us understand why they would need to sort of reshape the Christian faith as they're beginning to follow, and why it would sort of naturally happen for them. I don't know. Uh, Jesus was crucified on the cross. That's, that's not something that is just polite dinner table conversation for the Corinthian. <clears throat> now remember, some said, some were saying, I follow Paul, I follow Peter, I follow Apollos. And I, I wonder to myself, is this a way of sort, of sort of cleaning up a presentation of the faith? Now, of course, we want to be speaking to the culture into which we live, but this message of the cross can never be left behind. It reminds us how important the reality of this picture of Jesus on the cross remains for us who follow him. Once we begin to drift from the center of our message, we begin the beginning of our faith, the source of our power and our spiritual journey. We run into problems down the road and we begin to correlate other things with the actual cause. We miss the truth. We see Paul correcting the answer to the Corinthians. So as I said, I asked earlier, who do you follow? And he's, he's beginning to teach on not only who they follow, but how this following, by point, how they follow him by pointing to the cross. <clears throat> Another commentator, Mark Taylor, says, the cross is presented as both a way of salvation and the way of life. The cross is both a remedy for past sins and the basis of the Christian identity. The message of the cross reminds us who we follow and how Paul addresses three ideas pertaining to the basis of our faith. And this is the actual cause versus a correlation. So they, they could probably correlate these things to, to their faith. Number one is philosophy. And Paul says, your faith is not based on philosophy. He uses this word, and, and it's an interesting cor, cor, uh, comparison here. Paul is saying, 
it's the power of God, and they're calling it foolishness. And he's, he's, he's not comparing wisdom and foolishness. He seems to be, caring, be comparing the power of God and foolishness. And what we come to understand is the term power in this context, according to Taylor, has to do with the effectiveness of the cross to make God known to accomplish salvation and to transform lives. So Paul is seeing power not in the way that we sort of see power as the sort of lording it over people or the, the authority, their ability to do something. He's seeing it as the effectiveness of the message. The message of the cross is powerful because it actually changes lives. And the other messages are foolish because they don't make any difference. It's foolishness to the Jews who ask for signs from heaven. And it's foolishness to the Greeks who seek wisdom. So when we preach that Christ was crucified, the Jews are offended and the Greeks say it's all nonsense. Verses 22 and 23. The Greeks seek wisdom. The Greeks expect a message and a messenger who can compete with their love of new ideas and what they call wisdom. These guys love to just talk about new ideas. They would get together and just say, okay, what's a new idea? Let's talk about it. Let's discuss it. Let's talk in circles around it. Let's figure it out. It reminds me of this, of a man who became consumed with studying German existentialist philosophers. And he just spent more and more time in his study. So one evening his wife was getting ready to leave on a date together. and She couldn't find him anywhere. And when she finally looks into his study, she sees that he's not ready. And he's sitting there reading another existentialist philosopher and she's like exasperated she's like are you for real and he says that's what i'm trying to figure out philosophy can just sort of make us go in circles we just we don't even understand sometimes we've taken philosophy and just broken it into a million pieces so even when you go into the study of philosophy there's no more big story there's no more uniting there's no unit there's no university there's no unity in diversity of stories there's just a whole bunch of different specialties you can study like i study the second paragraph of hegel from 1927 and the other guy's like i studied the third one you know for 17 years and it's like well what about the big picture of life these are the questions that people really have and so this greek philosophy paul is saying it's foolishness because it's not effective it didn't get you guys anywhere it just caused divisions it caused these different divisions in your society you have the stoics the epicureans the hedonists and they're all saying this is the way to live and normal people are sort of scratching their heads saying, I, I don't understand it. And we in our, in our society have lived in an interesting time, philosophically speaking. Um, we've sort of climbed the mountain and reached the mystic sage sitting at the top of this mountain, you know, to ask him the, the, the one question and say, what, what is, you know, what is the most powerful truth? And uh, his answer is, there is no most powerful truth. They're all equal. Your truth is all, is all there is. And this causes some to rightly sort of throw up their hands and just say, whatever. I'm just going to go with whatever. And go with the most powerfully presented message or messages which align with their preference. So if there's no, if there's no sort of most powerful, there's no sort of unifying truth, there's no sort of transcendent real reality or truth that, that overgirds everything, then who cares? So we live in an age also, you could say, of self-help. I was just talking to someone this week that was telling me about reading self-help books. And it's a good definition of what Paul means, I think, when he says foolishness. So if self-help were the answer, why would we need books to tell us about it, number one? And is it really, really self-help if you're getting help from an author who wrote a book for you? 
to learn these things. And, and if self-help books really, really worked, wouldn't they stop selling? Wouldn't people stop writing them? Wouldn't the first one just like still be on the shelf? Like read that one, that one works. And this is what Paul is saying, the, these, these, the philosophies and things, their foolishness, not, not that people are stupid or they're foolish, it's because they don't work. It's foolish to continue to do the same thing over and over again and think you're going to get different results. So human knowledge, this philosophical way, is not the way to God. God decided that wouldn't be the way to himself. Some point at the ineffectiveness of human knowledge and say we should turn from it to miracles. The Jewish background people are saying we serve a God of miracles, the deliverer from Egypt. He's the one that, that does these mighty things. And many promote miracles as the way to know God and stop thinking. They say, you know, don't think. It just blocks God's ability to work, work in you and, and do miracles in you. And just let yourself just be uh, apart, from, apart, apart from your mind. And it's so hard to do. Um, and miracles are clearly not the way to God. And we know this most clearly from the history of the very people who, wanted, who d- demanded them were the Jewish people, which is so ironic. These people, the people of God in the, in the Old Testament, what we call the Old Testament, had seen more miracles than anybody. And yet, time and again, they see tremendous miracles and they slowly turn away from God. The miracles don't cause faith. But they most certainly will correlate with true faith. So Paul is saying the message labeled foolishness by the world is the effective message. It's the powerful message because it works. Messages, no matter how rhetorically powerful, that remain ineffective are foolishness. And then he moves on to this idea of prestige, social class. And he says to them, remember, dear brothers and sisters, that few of you were wise in the world's eyes or powerful or wealthy when God called you. Verse 26. Now let me ask you this question. Why is it so easy to assume that we're always right? Why is it so easy to look down on other people? And why do we so quickly divide into social classes? The Corinthians did this by having patronage. Patrons that were rich and wealthy would support other people. And if you had a good patron, it kind of elevated you in in a class. And you could actually move between the classes in Corinth, which is very hard to do in in a class-based society. You could go from being a slave to being a business person to being a tradesman. You could elevate yourself in this this society. And you did this by promoting your name and promoting the name of your patron at some point. And so it's only natural in a meritocracy, a place where one can pull themselves up by their bootstraps to begin to judge those who have not taken the same path or claim to be trapped in the system and are simply following the status quo, even though that status quo might be broken. It's, it's, it's so ingrained in us to just look down on people and say, you know what, if you just would have tried as hard as me, or if you, if you would just worked as hard as me, you would be where I'm at. And, and in a lot of ways, the, the Corinthian, Corinthians are factoring their faith through this, through this grid and trying to figure out how to, how to be the best. One of my favorite song lyrics ever comes from a Fiddler on the Roof song, If I Were a Rich Man. The main character in this play, Fiddler on the Roof, Tevia, is a traditional Jewish farmer, father in Russia, and he's singing about what life would be like as a rich man. He wouldn't have to toil away at his farms, but he could have a big house. And he says, in my big house, I would have one staircase over here and another one over here just for show. 
And, he, and then he says, and people would come to my house. All the people would come for answers. Even the rabbis would come to me for answers. And this is the line that just like rings in my mind. He says, because when you're rich, they think you really know. So even the rabbis would come and ask Tevia questions if he were a rich man. And he's just, he's sort of feeding his cows and singing the song. It's pretty, pretty funny. But that just kind of sticks in my craw a little bit because it seems to be a, a pathology that we also suffer with. Like, we, we just sort of like, I mean, if you, if you look at someone who's rich in our society, it's synonymous to say they're successful, right? Like, they're, they're a success. Well, how do we gauge it? Look at all the money they have. Jeff Bezos is obviously successful, you know? And he's the most successful, apparently, because he's the richest, you know? He's the richest man, I keep saying. Jeff Bezos just made another $5 billion today. He's so rich now that, he, you know, he's getting infected. He put himself in a TV commercial, you know? Because the rich people are telling us it's not enough. We don't listen, but we have that idea. Like, when you're rich, I think you really know. And so this sort of idea of class... This upper class idea in Corinth very much influenced the way they were living out their lives and living out their following of Christ. It was built on this social strata. And I think we can begin to see the same disease in us. This idea that somehow God's really blessing you if you're rich and you've you've attained some level in our society. But if you're poor and you have problems and maybe you're homeless or maybe you're, you're dealing with addiction or whatever it might be, God's not blessing you. Or you, you need to do something to, to change around your, your circumstances because then God would bless you if you'd only become successful. It's so easy to slip into that kind of, that kind of thinking. And, it, and it, it's a direct byproduct of starting to slip away from the message of the cross. We, we, begin to, we begin to think there's something special about me. There's something special about my work, about my mind, about my ability that's somehow better than that person because I would never do that I remember talking with a a friend of mine named Matthew some of you guys have known him he's a drummer and he was telling me about the best places to panhandle and he said Broadway is the best place to panhandle in Seattle I could make like 30 bucks in an hour and I I immediately start thinking to myself like oh man $30 an hour like that's more than I made and then I could I could you know I'm starting to calculate like if I put in eight hours panhandling on Broadway I'm like man you could make like this much and he's like, no, if I made 30 bucks, I was done. And I'm like, oh, like, I just think I'm so smart, you know, like I would just go out and like make panhandling a full-time job. And like panhandlers are a lot smarter than, than we make them out to be. So we just have this sort of, I, I just call it a, like a sickness, like a, a distortion in our mind. We are, we are born into materialism. We're born into this culture that's a meritocracy, the American dream. If you, work, if you work hard, you're going to achieve the American dream. And, and here's what it looks like. It's defined by success and money and picket fences and cars and 1.2 kids. Like all of those things are, are what we sort of, we're, we swim in that water and it's hard for us to get out of it. And th- it's the same for the Corinthians. They're swimming in their culture and they're, and they're trying to experience Jesus in the ways that make sense to them. And they're just letting those things sort of come and take the place of where they began. The point Paul's making here is that it's God's choice. 
God's choice of his people is not based on any human accountings or standards. And it's so clearly seen in the story of David. The King David, the greatest king in Israel's history. The golden age is the age of King David. When King David was chosen as a, as a king, a prophet, Samuel, was sent to his family, to his dad. And the prophet said to Jesse, his dad, bring out your sons. I need to pray for them. God sent me here to pray for your sons. So Jesse brings out all his sons, and there they are. And Jesse goes up, or Samuel goes to the, the big, you know, handsome son and says, surely this is the king, you know. And he starts to pray for him, and God says, that's not him. And Samuel, but the Lord said to Samuel, do not judge by, he, by his appearance or height, for I have rejected him. The Lord doesn't see things the way you see them. People judge by outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. So Samuel goes through all of, the, all of the sons that are there, and God says no to all of them. So now he's scratching his head, and he says, do you have any other sons? Because God told me to pray for your son. He goes, well, I have one more, you know, worthless little David. He's, out, he's tending the sheep. That he wasn't even worthy of consideration in his dad's own mind to be prayed for by a prophet. And that's the one that God chose. God chose David, the little shepherd boy, who he calls a man after his own heart. And nobody, even his own dad, did not choose him as the potential king for Israel. God chose him. So the Corinthians are beginning to think to themselves, well, of course I'm in Christ because look at me. I'm, I'm a pretty good person. You know, I do this and that. And of course, like, God would have chosen me. And you get, once, you, once you begin to go down that road, you're forgetting the message of the cross. So it's tempting to impose our human standards on those who we deem worthy of being in the church. But those standards are foolishness. Although it seems that we can see, although it's, it seems uh, that, we, that God is capricious or without purpose in choosing people, there seems to be a criteria, and it's those who will glorify God. Those who live, whose lives will demonstrate God's power to transform. People God fill with the Spirit who become ambassadors, not because of where they are or where they're, for, where they're from, but because of who lives inside of them. I've been, and I'm sure maybe you've had the thought, to your, you've thought to yourself, I'm not really the right kind of person to serve Jesus. Or maybe you've just heard this lie in your head. Paul says to the Corinthians and us, consider your calling. God calls people to himself. He's calling people to himself right now with a clear message, the message of Jesus lifted up on the cross. It's the message of the cross that God is using to call people to himself. When we're tempted to believe that we're not the right type, we need to listen to the teaching of Jesus about who we are. It's so freeing. In John chapter 15, Jesus is teaching his disciples, and he's he's encouraging them with who he is and who they are, and he says this in John 15, 16. You didn't choose me. I chose you and appointed you to go and produce lasting fruit so the Father will give you whatever you ask for using my name. That, that passage, I don't know about you, but that passage is a great encouragement to me. I didn't, I didn't choose Jesus. I, would, I, fr- I confess it. That's my life story. I don't choose you, Jesus. But Jesus chose me. Jesus came and grabbed me. He came and changed my life around. He just grabbed my head and twisted me and made me walk the other way. I can't explain it. And I'm so encouraged that he not only says, you didn't choose me, but I chose you so that you would go out and bear fruit. 
God didn't choose you because he knew that you were going to struggle with your faith and not be able to make it. God didn't choose you hoping that somehow your character would shine through and show other people what he was like. God didn't choose you because of your capability or your brains or your wisdom. God chose you because he wanted to and you're going to bear fruit for him. That's it. He's the one that's in charge. It's so encouraging to think about the message of our calling. He reminds the Corinthians who are concerned about their social status to remember how they came into the faith. God called you. God chose you. We think we're not wise enough or righteous enough or holy enough or good enough or in good enough relationship with God. And these things are all true. But it brings us back to the message of the cross. And we can stop wallowing in the morass of self-deprecation and look to Jesus. He is capable wise, righteous, holy, and rich enough to pay for our guilt, offering forgiveness instead so that we can stop looking to our failings but to his victory and boast in him. Paul ends this section and reminds them that they can boast in the Lord, not in themselves. Oh, I've been a Christian for so and so many years and I have this many gifts and I'm a this and that and I do all this. No. You know what? I'm, I was a horrible person and I only cared about myself, and then God, God came and transformed my life. Jesus changed me. That's what I can boast in. Jesus has made my life so different that I wouldn't even like, my old self does not like my new self. <laughs> my old self would think I'm just a total joke. That's boasting in Christ. And the, the idea of boasting in Christ is simply proclaiming the, the message of the cross, <laughs> proclaiming the good news of the gospel. Paul ends this section at the beginning. He reminds them of his first visit. Now he talks about being persuasive. They loved the persuasion of the rhetoric. But Paul reminds them how they, became, how they came into the faith. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, when I first came to you, dear brothers and sisters, I didn't use lofty words and impressive wisdom to tell you God's secret plan. For I decided that while I was with you, I would forget everything except Jesus Christ, the one who was crucified. I came to you in weakness, timid and trembling, and my message and my preaching were very plain. Rather than using clever and persuasive speeches, I relied on the power of the Holy Spirit, and, and I did this so you would trust not in human wisdom, but in the power of God. Paul most likely understood and was competent with the rhetoric of their age and could engage in it. But he chose not to. He intentionally chose to share in plain language a simple and scandalous message trusting not in his philosophy or his prestige or his persuasiveness, but in the content of the message, the power of the Spirit. This message is the effective power to every person in plain language. So when I, when I begin talking about causation and correlation, and when we begin to mix them up, i.e. things that happen together versus things that cause where we're at, we, we begin to get confused. But correlation is an important thing because correlation does lead us toward understanding how things should be working. It's an important factor in helping understand life. You know, when these things go together, these things don't go together. The message of the gospel is a spiritual message promising a mystical relationship with the very presence of God, <clears throat> the Holy Spirit. We share this message while God is at work calling people to himself through us the natural bent of the Corinthians toward philosophy and prestige began to lead them away from the center. Our culture is one of naturalism and constant distraction. These ideas militate against a healthy understanding of the message of the cross and walking in the spirit. 
The message of the cross remains scandalous because it challenges our flesh. It challenges our idols of entertainment and comfort and 1.5 hour a week spirituality. We can't, we can't find ourselves like, the, we can find ourselves like the Corinthians drifting toward a more culturally acceptable form of following Jesus and beginning to drift from the message of the cross. The message of the cross is not a one-time belief. It's an ongoing lifestyle. Jesus correlates it with discipleship. He said, if anyone would be my disciple, he must take up his cross and follow me. The power of the message is the basis for our trust in Jesus. Our faith is not based on an intellectual assent to the propositional truths of the faith. Our faith is not based on social status or nobility. And our faith is not based on how persuasive our teacher was or is. Our faith is based on the message of the cross, which opens the way to restored relationship with God, introducing the effective power of the Holy Spirit who makes us alive in Christ, who is God's empowering presence to bear fruit he has chosen that he has chosen to bear the very presence of God with us, the helper, the advocate, the one who reminds us of everything Jesus taught. Paul says to Timothy in a letter, in a letter to Timothy, for God has not given us a spirit of fear and timidity, but of power, love, and self-discipline. So never be ashamed to tell others about our Lord. In Romans, he continues in a letter to the Romans. So now there is no condemnation for those who belong to Christ Jesus. And because you belong to him, the power of the life-giving spirit has freed you from the power of sin that leads to death. But if through the power of the spirit you put to death the deeds of your sinful nature, you will live. For all who are led by the spirit of God are the children of God. So you have not received a spirit that makes you fearful slaves. Instead, you received God's spirit when he adopted you as his own children. And now we call him Abba, Father. For his spirit joins with our spirit to affirm that we are God's children. I just want to conclude with what Paul says to the Corinthians in chapter 2. I decided that while I was with you, I would forget everything except Jesus Christ, the one who was crucified. I came to you in weakness, timid and trembling, and my message and my preaching were very plain. Rather than using clever and persuasive speeches, I relied on the, on the power of the Holy Spirit. And he, this is the whole point. I did this so you would trust not in human wisdom, but in the power of God. And I just want to pray for us this morning uh, a prayer from Ephesians. Father, I pray that from your glorious and unlimited resources that you would empower us with, your, with inner strength through your spirit so that Christ will make his home in our hearts as we trust in you. Lord, that our roots will grow down into your love and that we would be made strong that we would have the power to understand, as all God's people should, how wide, how long, how high, and how deep your love is. Lord, let us experience the love of Christ, though it's too great to fully understand. And make us complete with all the fullness of life and power that comes from you. Now all glory to you, who are able through your mighty power at work within us to accomplish infinitely more than we might ask or think. Glory to you in the church and in Christ Jesus through all generations forever and ever. Amen.